Now, the book of Ecclesiastes is in the Old Testament, if you don't know where that is. If you go in 1 Corinthians, go left quite a long ways, <laughs> and you'll hit it. <laughs> it's right after, uh, right after the Psalms. and the, <laughs> It's right after the Psalms and Proverbs. It's one of the wisdom literature books of the Old Testament. Um, let me make a number of introductory comments. First of all, as you know, I, I do this with all of the uh, study guides I give. This is what is called a synthetic chart, and this is one that Swindoll does, and it's so well done, I can't imagine that I could improve on it by trying to do my own. I'll refer to that occasionally, but that's a good way to just get a synopsis of the book. Let me make a whole bunch of introductory comments about the book. It is written by Solomon. Who's he? David's son. All right, he's David's son, King David's son, the king. Um, what are some things that you, uh, you know, either know about Solomon in terms of your own study or you remember from church, you remember from Sunday school, or just perhaps what you you have heard over the years. Um, what do you know about Solomon? God of tremendous wisdom. All right. Uh, he's known as a man of, of significant wisdom. Um, the, you know, the old saying is, he's the wise man that ever lived. What else do you know about him? Constructed the temple. All right. He built the temple. His father, David, uh, wanted to build the temple. It was his intent to build the temple, but God interrupted those plans and said, David, you've met a man of war, you've shed much blood, your son will build the temple. And it's significant that Solomon, which is a Hebrew name, is built on shalom, which means peace. And that gives the contrast between David, a man of war, because that was his intent. He vanquished all the enemies of Israel and established peace. And his son, Shalom, Solomon, a man of peace, was the exact opposite of his father. And so he built the temple. His father had spent the last years of his life preparing for the temple. He invested all, he bought this site on which temple was built, we call Temple Mount. Bought it from a, a man named Aruna in the last days of his life. He acquired all of the materials. He entered into a contract with the people of Lebanon to get all the cedar wood. He ordered uh, a whole slew of stonemasons to begin working on cutting the stone. So he was preparing for it, and his son would complete it. What else do you know about Solomon? He had roughly a, what would be the equivalent of about $100 million a year coming in, some people think. Uh-huh. How, how so? Where do you get that? Trading. Okay. Solomon, Solomon's empire, uh, really built on his father's uh, conquest, Solomon's empire was one of the most significant empires of the ancient world. Solomon was one of the superpowers. This is roughly 3,000 years ago, you know, 950 B.C. or so is Solomon. Uh, his kingdom was one of the richest, most powerful kingdoms of the ancient world. And he controlled, he controlled the two major international highways. One's called the King's Highway, which goes up through the mountains, and Via Mars, which goes along the coast. He controlled both of those, and he taxed everything that went on. And so, I mean, his, his wealth was significant, and the wealth of the kingdom. What else do you know about Solomon? Pagan women. Uh, he had a lot of pagan wives, and they led him, to, led him further away from God. Okay. First of all, he had 
many wives, including many, many concubines. Concubine is an old word for prostitutes, or harem, as it was called in the other parts of the Middle East. It was calculated that Solomon could take a different woman to bed every night and it would take him almost three and a half years to get back to that same woman that he started with. Uh, now that, I'm not saying that approvingly by any stretch. That was typical of kings of the ancient world. They had harems of significant size. And, as, and you're correct. In addition to that, he married, uh, they were all basically political marriages, but he married the 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 daughters of all the significant powers around his kingdom. And as he brought them into the kingdom, they brought their religious worldview with them. What did Solomon do with all that? I thought he was the wisest man that ever lived, as Jim correctly said. It doesn't seem like a very wise thing to do. And I don't mean the political marriages, although you know that creates tension for us. But bringing, bringing the worldviews of these women into the kingdom, did he order them to stop worshiping their gods? No. As a matter of fact, he did just the opposite. He built temples to them. If you Remember, it is God's will for you to do this, but when you go to Israel with me, and we'll stand on Temple Mount, and I'll show you to the southeast, is called the Hill of Abominations, and that's where Solomon built all of the temples to the foreign gods of, of his wives. Um, what else do you know about him? Why do you do that? Well, there are two answers to it. One, they were political marriages. I mean, that was very typical answer. But the other answer, and it was gross, egregious sin on his part. He just was very defiant about it. There seemed to be some arrogance about his wealth as well. Yes. Yes. Would you say Solomon started off well and ended bad? I mean, that's putting it very crudely, but that's essentially, that's essentially right. And as Jim is correct, I mean, he virtually bankrupt his kingdom on his building program. I mean, now he built the temple. I mean, the, the, the palace he built, they are only now, they've only now uncovered it. There is major excavation going right at the base of Temple Mount, which uh, it's a, a very famous archaeologist. She's right. She's found Solomon's temple. So in the next 10 years or so, they will we'll be able to see significant portions of it. Um, he's, he built chariot cities all over his kingdom to protect his kingdom. Um, he built um, probably the most significant army uh, of the history of Israel. Certainly it rivaled the armies of, uh, of the other parts of, of, uh, of the, the world at that time. As I said, he really was, he, he made his kingdom into one of the great superpowers of the ancient world. Anything else you know about Solomon? Well, going a little bit before, which would be uh, King David's relationship with Bathsheba. Been often surprised in, uh, in, in noticing that it was from that relation, that illicit relationship, when they got married. Then, because David had other sons That's well, right. that he could have used, or which Abner found, or yeah. uh, went, you know, he did his own undoing. But yes. that God saw fit to bless that relationship mm. with Solomon, mm. who then became king. That's right. Um, that's right. His, his mother. That's right. It's a, a very good point. 
I want, to say, I want you to think with me about a passage that's in Deuteronomy chapter 17. I like to start the study of Solomon by looking at this passage. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14. Now, I don't know how much you know about the book of Deuteronomy, but Deuteronomy was written by Moses to the second generation of the Jewish people who had come out of Israel. The first generation, there were a few exceptions uh, that did not die, but the first generation had disobeyed the Lord and that wilderness wandering for 40 years, and the vast majority of them died. They're just about ready to cross into the promised land. And Moses writes the book of Deuteronomy. It's a reminder of the truths that God is holding them to as they are about to enter the land. And he brings something up that we see that they were to have a king was part of God's will for them. But it would need to be in God's timing. But in Deuteronomy 17, verse 14, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations which are around me, did they do that? Yes, they would do that. You shall surely set a king over you. Now here I want you to notice how God sets down the qualifications for the monarchy. Whom the Lord your God chooses, who will choose the king? The Lord will. From among your countrymen you shall set as a king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. The king must be a Jew. Third, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said you shall never again return that way. Verse 17, neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest he turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it shall come about, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen. They shall not turn aside from the commandment to the right or the left, in order that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. When you read a passage like that and set it against Solomon, what do you see? Contrast. A distinct contrast, because he violated virtually everything. The book of Ecclesiastes is written at the end of Solomon's life. It is written at the end of his life after everything that we know of him, that we briefly just summarized in this brief discussion. And he's reflecting on it. It would be hard to say of Solomon's life, success. What was that again? It would be hard to say of Solomon's life. So you're going to write an epitaph to put on his gravestone, for example. Would you write success? Not if you put this passage we just briefly looked at as a standard. As a matter of fact, you would probably put across his life, on his epitaph, what a tragedy. 
He began well. He ended disastrously. Well, uh, my question sounds to me like he has distorted thinking, if you will. Uh, if he didn't follow Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, mm -hmm, sure. Uh, mm -hmm. And so now he writes a book and that we're having the Bible. Are we to give, uh, is this going to be correct, what he's writing, if he was distorted? With yes, yes. Okay, so he wrote this at the end of his life. That's right. But, um, Just follow the rest of the Bible? Yes. So he finally got it? Yes. Okay, me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Flash it over. What do you ask the questions that we all want to hear? It's screwed up. It's what he's saying. One of the one of the very significant apologetics for the Bible, do you know what I mean by that, apologetics, making a defense of it, is unlike almost every other uh, book coming out of the ancient world, the Bible doesn't hide anything. It, it doesn't distort anything. It tells it like it is. And I hope you understand what I mean by that. Um, most of all, there are, there are hardly any exceptions to this. Uh, if you go to the British Museum in London, you see uh, they're called uh, uh, stelae, but they're big, uh, big pillars on which the kings had a chronicle written about all the things that accomplished in their reign. Because when the British ruled the, much of the world, they brought so much in archaeology into the museum. It's a fantastic place. I love to visit there. But what's on those stelae? What's on those chronicles? They're failures? <laughs> The things they tried and didn't work? No. The only thing you see are all their victories and positive things of their life. The Bible doesn't, the Bible doesn't, uh, doesn't tell the story like that. In every single ruler, in every single king, and in the New Testament, the same thing. It's warts and all. That's an old yeah, saying. Like his father, David. Exactly. I mean, David, you know, David was a great man. Peter says in his sermon in, in Acts that he was a man after God's own heart. But yet David sinned. And David did egregious things that were displeasing to the Lord. But he always came back to the Lord. Uh, that's David. It's, it, what is amazing about Solomon is he apparently didn't learn anything from his dad. And, and I don't mean that his dad didn't try to teach, but I mean, all that he knew about his father, he didn't learn any of the lessons his father learned because he repeats the same, he repeats the same mistakes. And he does, he does things in, in that sense. He does things way beyond what his father did. And unlike his father... Solomon does not have a soft heart until the end of his life. There's a, I think one of you used the word hubris. Uh, there's an arrogance and a hubris about hubris. Do you know what hubris means? It's an arrogant, defiant pride. He has that until the end of his life. And that's why, and this isn't an original thought with me, but we, we believe that Solomon writes Ecclesiastes near the end of his life because so much of what he talks about is his life. 
And so he's, you know, I don't know if we can say this for certain, but he's nearing death. He's nearing the end of his life. And he says, I am going to review, in a very real sense, all the mistakes I've made. And I want you to learn from this. And that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. It's an honest, transparent, warts and all kind of summary of this man's life. And it's not pretty until you get to chapter 12. All right, now I wanted, uh, one, I wanted to see how much you knew about Solomon, and it's really great. You, you, you have a good overview of who he is. Second, I wanted to take you to Deuteronomy 17. That is a very, every, when I wrote my book, I, I used that as the key in evaluating all the kings, because that's the standard. And so secondly, as we start this, I want you to understand um, the thesis of the book. Do you know what I mean by the thesis? What's the major theme of the book? And you see it right away in verse 2. Now, uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 2. Now, there are several translations I would imagine around the table, so I'm not sure they're all going to have it quite this way. I'm reading from the New American Standard. The, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, here's the thesis. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now, I don't know the last time you heard the word vanity used in a sentence. I, I can't remember the last time I heard somebody use that word in a sentence. It's not a typical term that we use. So, vanity or vain. What does that mean? For show. Um, no, no substance. No substance. Empty. Uh, a, a pride that is empty of all worth and value. Uh, meaninglessness of life. It's a very doom and gloom, depressing way to talk about things. Let me, let me illustrate a way to think about this. Now, I'm going to go way beyond an image that Solomon's painting, but I think it's a very legitimate way to put it. The universe, the world, is a box. And it's a closed box. I don't know if you're following me, but the world, everything that we know about, everything we see is a closed box. What you see is what you get. In other words, there is nothing transcendent. There's nothing beyond the box. There's nothing beyond the world that you see. It's what you hear, what you see, what you touch, etc. That's it. And Solomon is saying, if we live in a closed box universe, vanity of vanities, everything meaningless, Let's put it another way. Solomon is saying, if you look at your world and you look at your life and you look at everything around you and you say, there is nothing transcendent, there's nothing beyond the physical world, put it another way, there is no God, then there's no meaning to anything. Everything is vanity. Everything's empty. Everything's meaningless. Now, let me draw your attention to the first page. 
I'm not sure Solomon wants us to do it this way, but I'm going to dump it all at the front end so that you understand what he's doing. Because if you don't, honestly, if you don't keep in mind what he's doing, you keep saying, well, why is he saying these things? We're not supposed to do that. We're not supposed to act like that. We're not supposed to think that way. But remember the thesis. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity if the box is closed. If there's nothing beyond the physical world. So look at your notes. That first page. Now just let me walk you through this and it goes over to the next page. Why does Ecclesiastes paint such a dark picture of life? Why does there appear to be such doom and gloom? Why do there appear to be so many contradictions in the book? And that's the appearance. I want to make four comments. One, Solomon demonstrates that life without God has no meaning. Earthly goals as ends in themselves lead to dissatisfaction and emptiness. Solomon shocks us into seeing life and death strictly from ground level and into reaching the only conclusion from that standpoint that intellectual honesty permits. Number two, since much in life cannot be fully understood, these are the conclusions Solomon's going to reach. We must live by faith, not by sight. Humans are not in control. Since life, for life is filled with unexplained enigmas, unresolved anomalies, and uncorrected injustices. Solomon affirms human finiteness and that much of life is a mystery. Life cannot only be horizontal. Do you understand what I mean by that? It just can't be at ground level. There must be a vertical dimension to life or it doesn't make any sense. And number three, life under the sun. That is a very, very, very important phrase in this book. It is used 29 times in the book. And that when he says under the sun, that's what he means, what I call this closed box. Under the sun. The, 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 the uh, uh, physical closed box universe of what you see is what you get under the sun cannot provide accurate and exhaustive answers if this is a closed box universe. If there is nothing beyond the physical world, then all is futile, empty, and meaningless. That's why right out of the chute he says that, vanity of vanities. And then finally, number four, the only answer that provides meaning to life either the last verses of the book, chapter 12, verses 13, 14, is fear God, and fear, remember, in the Bible, is a worship word, and enjoy one's lot. On their own, humans, can, humans find life empty, frustrating, and mysterious. But with God in the picture, or keeping the analogy I was making, the box is not closed, Emptiness becomes fulfillment. Frustration becomes contentment. And the mysterious becomes the awe-inspiring, even if there is not exhaustive understanding. I hope you understand how I put that together. 
The book of Ecclesiastes, and I love to teach this. I loved, I've studied it for many, many years. I've preached on it quite a few times. It's one of my favorite books because it seems, it seems to be hitting at the core of the postmodern world. Because the postmodern world is just like that. They're trying everything they possibly can to find fulfillment. And they flip from one thing to another thing to another thing. They try one thing after another thing, and they don't find fulfillment. They just try something else. And this millennial generation that's coming up, they're sharp. They're, I, I, these are the kids I've, I have in school now. They're sharp. They're focused. But I'm telling you, their spiritual life is very shallow. And we have got to challenge them as they're seeking with passion so many things in life. Try the Lord Jesus Christ with the same passion. Because that's where you're going to find the answers to the unresolved mysteries of life that you see all around you and you're asking really hard questions about. The answer is Christ. And so the, the, the conclusions Solomon reaches, the observations he makes about life, are incredibly relevant. It's amazing this is a 3,000-year-old book. I mean, it is like it was written yesterday. Well, you're going to see later on, he, he talks, you know, he said, I have worked hard, I have this well-balanced portfolio, I'm using 21st century word, but I'm wealthy and so on. You know what? I'm soon going to die, and I'm going to pass it on to my kids, and they're all a bunch of fools. Why did I work so hard? Is that a relevant question or not? I mean, it's like some guy out of Wall Street just wrote a little essay, and it was published in Forbes. <laughs> work hard, save, be a balanced portfolio. Why am I doing that? You know, that's a good question. Why am I doing that? Because all my kids are not going to use this money the way I've used it. I've been frugal. I've saved. I've been shrewd. I don't see an ounce of that in any of them. That's how, that's, I've, I've talked to people like that. Solomon is saying exactly the same thing. Because you see, if the box is closed, then why are you doing that? I just used a quote over Easter where I was speaking uh, from Tim Keller. He, I don't know if you know that name. I love to read his books. He's a pastor in Manhattan, uh, lower Manhattan uh, in New York City. He is, te- he is at the center of the postmodern generation. And he, in this one message uh, that I was using, he says, um, you know, a lot of you are here today, and I'm so thankful you are, but this is one, of the, one or two times you come to church during the year. I'm glad you're here. But, you know, we're here to celebrate the resurrection. And he says, I know a lot of you are real skeptical about that. But I want you to consider something with me. Most of you that are here, you're very concerned about the environment. Remember, this is New York, you know, kind of left-leaning, the liberal issues. You're very concerned about the injustice. You're concerned about the poor. You're, you're concerned about racial and ethnic discrimination. You're concerned, but I want to ask you, why are you concerned about this thing? Because if there is no resurrection, why does it matter about these things? If there's no resurrection, which meaning there's no eternal life, which meaning when you die, that's it, why are you concerned about the environment? Why are you concerned about the poor? Why are you concerned about injustice? And by the way, how do you know that what injustice is anyway? You see what he's doing? He's taking a central biblical and theological truth and spinning it into a very practical question about life. That's what Solomon's doing in this book. 
He's going to dump theology on us, but most of the time the theology is going to be through the series of some observations about life. Why do you work hard if the box is closed? He says, I've tried everything. I've indulged, we're going to see this in the next chapter, I've indulged in sex. I've had any woman I've ever wanted. Anything that I've wanted materially, I've bought. I have built enormous gardens. I've built palaces. I have horses the numer- more numerous than any other king has ever lived. But it's all vanity. That's what he keeps saying. He keeps coming back. It's vanity. It's vanity. It's vanity. Because if there is no God, then why do you do these things? And he's going to say several times, what we, what, really, the, the wise thing for us to do then is just eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. Live it up. Indulge. As a matter of fact, if there is no eternity and there is no God, the logic is indulge. That's the logic. Get everything out of life you can, because when you die, that's it. So you might as well just live it up. Eat, you know, that old saying, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you die. See, Paul, uh, not Paul, we're in Solomon now. Solomon is driving that point home. If there is no God, nothing really makes sense. So you might as well just indulge. Do whatever you want to do, because it doesn't matter. But if it does matter, then it really matters how you live your life. Solomon learned that the hard way. And that's what he's reflecting on with us. Now, I've just given you the major themes of the book. I don't know if Solomon wanted me to do it that way, but I want you to understand where he's going with all this. And that, in my view, is why it's one of the most wonderful books in Scripture. Are you with me? Are we ready to dig into it? Let's go. Let's go. When Jim says, let's go, we go. None of the rest of you said anything, so I'm going to... Well, you well, and I will go. You and I will go, okay. All right. Um, again, I, I have so much of this written out. Uh, you obviously can have the freedom to write whatever you want, but I've written so much of it out. But um, the verse 1 points to the identity author as being, uh, as being Solomon, the son of David. The thesis statement, vanity of vanities, um, again, that word vanity or meaninglessness, that which is without substance, value, permanent, significance, or meaning. And I want you to notice that he applies this to everything. As he goes through the book, he applies this to everything. Now, what I want you to do in verse uh, with me, and we're going to go through this now rather carefully, but in verses 3 through 11, he offers a series of proof statements for his theme. And then the rest of the book, he's just going to he's just going to broaden. He's going to include almost everything you can think of. He's going to include in the book. But the first support, the first support for his thesis is verse three. It's in the form of a question. But what advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? You see, under the sun, twenty-nine times in the book. The box is closed. There's nothing beyond the physical world. What you see is what you get. Appropriate question. What's the advantage? 
What's the profit? What's the gain of work hard, of working hard? You have a, an admirable work ethic and you work hard and there's no God. Why are you doing that? That's an appropriate question. That's what Solomon is saying. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, vanity of vanities. First thing to consider in this thesis, why do you work? What's the profit? What's the advantage? What's the gain of work? And then verse 4, now this, um, this, is, a, this, is, this is poetry here. It's, it's really, but it's, it's also, it not only flows easily, it's, it's very germane and very penetrating as truth. Verse 4, a generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. What's he saying? Human beings are transitory. They're, in, they're, they're impermanent. And therefore, they're insignificant. Now, that is a very, very relevant thought for the 21st century. We're living longer. Medical technology has enabled us to live longer. But what is one reality? We still are going to die. We, you know, when, when FDR had the Congress pass the Social Security Act, and old age insurance, survivor's insurance program it was called at that time, the, the average American died at 63 years old. So the government, in its wisdom, said this is a good deal. Actuarially, 65, we're not going to have to spend much on this. So we're going to build up this enormous trust fund, because remember how it was set up, the employer contributes an amount, the employee contributes an amount. Well, and in those, I don't know if you know the history of that, Congress just kept adding all kinds of benefits to the Social Security Administration. Major disability things. And just kept adding and adding and adding until medical technology dropped a bomb on them. They started allowing people to live longer. They're not supposed to do that. They're not supposed to increase the actuarial tail. It's not supposed to work like that. And then nobody wants to change it. And all I'm saying is, the point still is, regardless of how the Social Security Administration or the medical community, you're still going to die. Because the generation goes, and the generation comes. The Bible talks about life like a vapor, like a mist. Here today, gone tomorrow. I'm the oldest person in this room. I'm 67 this year. I think I'm the oldest person. Maybe not. No, no. Okay, but I'm close. <laughs> I have an idea who is. Yeah. There's three or four of them at least. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it. I, yeah, it's nice. He's humble about it. <laughs> but I, I, I think about this because I, I, I pray about this every day. That I, I asked the Lord when I retired two years ago. I asked the Lord to give me 20 more years of ministry. That was that been my prayer. I don't know if I answer that prayer. But the point is, uh, the, you know, the biggest part of my life's over. The most productive years of my life are over. And so that little statement that's in the book of James, life is like a vapor here today. That has a lot more meaning to me now than when I was 20. All I'm saying is that what, what Solomon is saying is life is short. 
So if life is short and vanity of vanity is the thesis, that kind of leads to some despair. That can lead to gloom. Third evidence is in verses 5 through 7. He says nature, just looking at nature indicates this. The sun rises, the sun sets. Hastening its place, it rises again. Blowing toward the south, turning toward the north. The wind continues swirling along and its circular courses the wind returns. The rivers flow into the sea. The sea is not full. To the place the rivers flow, there they flow again. Nature shows life Excuse me, the lack of value to activity in an elf of salt. It produces no value. The sun, you know, the way we speak of it, the sun rises and sets every day. The wind blows. The streams feed into the rivers, which feed into the huge river system, which feed into the seas, which feed into the oceans. That's just a cycle. Everything is a cycle. Here's another subpart of his thesis everything is a meaningless cycle. And the cycle, if the box is closed, has no meaning. It's just a cycle. Now, when he starts bringing God into the picture, these have immensely valuable things you can conclude about it. But if there's no God, it's just a meaningless cycle. And then finally, he adds in verses 8 through 11, the nature of human endeavor itself. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing, that which has been, that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. It's part of the cycle. Is there anything of which one might say, see, this is new? Already it has existed for ages which were before us. And besides that, this is my little editorial edition, besides that, there's no remembrance of early things. And of the latter things which will occur, there'll be no remembrance among those who will come later still. There's no memory. He's inferring, do we learn anything from studying what past people did? Not really. One historian one time wrote, the one thing we learn from history is that we don't learn anything from history. (laughs) What Solomon is doing, if you look at your notes, what we see in nature, we see in human endeavor. There's nothing really new. And even things that seem new really are not, for people just forget the past. Things that humans produce are not really new. Even the moon is just another point for discovery and ultimately only produce indescribable weariness and lack of satisfaction. Now that, in that little parenthesis, that's an example of mine. What's new? New is what we seek to discover and master. But what seeking to discover and master isn't new. Do you understand what I mean? Why did we want to go to the moon? Well, we want to discover it and we want to master it, which we really haven't been able to do. We're talking about going to Mars. Why do we want to go to Mars? Well, we want to discover it and master it, but why do we want to do that? See, Solomon is asking that fundamental question because the human spirit is, I want to go over the next mountain and conquer what's on the other side of the mountain. I want to go over and find out what's on the other side of the mountain. 
And you get over across the other side of the mountain, you say, oh my goodness, there's another mountain. Well, I better go. I just finished reading a book on the Lewis and Clark expedition. And when, when you read, the, when, when they were, their main reason for the Lewis and Clark was to find the Northwest Passage. They thought they could find a waterway that would connect the Mississippi and Missouri with the, the Pacific, because there is no such thing. But when they, when they got right to the edge of the northern Rockies, it just about did them in. I'm serious, because they looked at that, oh my goodness, we have to cross that? But did they stop? No. They almost starved to death till they got to the other side. What Solomon is saying, there is this desire to discover, and you get what you were seeking to discover. Are you satisfied? No. Solomon is saying, and, and this is, this is a, an important theological point, you and I can chart enormous technological progress. But can you chart progress in the human condition? You understand what I mean by that? No. I could take you, and they're in translation, but I could take you back to cuneiform tablets from 5,500 years ago in southern Mesopotamia. And on those tablets, parents are complaining about their children not obeying them. Husbands are complaining about their wives being unfaithful to them. The people of the kingdom of Eriduk Markar, that's his name, this obscure king, are complaining that he's not a good ruler. Does any of that sound familiar? The human condition hasn't changed. Solomon's conclusion is, he's not talking about technology here. He's talking about the human condition. There's nothing new under the sun. The challenges and problems and things that Solomon was writing about 3,000 years ago are still the challenges and things you are talking about today. Not in terms of technology, but in terms of the issues of living. Solomon is saying, if there is no God, ultimately and fundamentally, nothing has any meaning to it. And it, it, it presses the question, why do we do what we do? Why do we work hard? Because we're really not here very long. Nature even shows the cyclical nature, uh, the cyclical nature of life, and it doesn't change in human endeavors like that. We love to discover. We, we love to be creative. We love to conquer. And when we get it, what do we want to do? Go and conquer and discover something else, which is not a negative, as he will argue later on. That comes from God. But if there's no God, why are you doing it? If you are an atheist or practical atheist, why are you doing this? And so it just, to me, that gets back to what is really one of the major questions of life. And a person, when they start to think about these things, that becomes a fantastic opportunity for you and me to say, you know, there is a meaning and purpose to life. And I'd like to introduce you to him. Are you interested? And sometimes people say, no, not really. But sometimes they are. Okay, now let me stop there for a minute. Are you with me? Are there any questions? I'm trying to, this is, this is laying the groundwork for this wonderful book. But uh, any questions? Is there a deer in the headlight look or are you, you with what's going on? So isn't this, I mean, particularly relevant because, I mean, I think probably there isn't a man around this table that hasn't felt this sort of frustration at some point in life. Absolutely. And, and it does 
I mean, when you experience that, it does push you to say there must be something more. What is that? Is that what he's trying to provoke here? It is. It's a, that you are you are spot on there. That is exactly what he's trying to do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and the thing that I just so appreciate about this book is, again, this is a man writing in the ancient world. This is 3,000 years ago. And it really does demonstrate to us things have not changed. The technology has changed. Where we meet and where we sleep and where we eat, that's changed. But the basics of the human condition, human endeavor, have not changed one iota. That's why this book's so relevant to us. Because it, it, and I think that's partially where Jim was going with this, because you, you can, and I assume that's probably true for everybody on this table, you really work hard. You have a very admirable work ethic, and you, you go hard after the things that you're pursuing and doing, and then you get it, and you reach that goal. You cross that threshold. And all of a sudden, after a little bit, you start to feel dissatisfied again. A little bit uneasy. Now I don't have anything to do. Now I don't, I, I've reached my goal. Now what do I do? I had uh, this goes back a number of years ago, maybe eight, seven, eight years ago. Very, very, very well known man in this community. Very successful, very wealthy man. And um, we were talking about a number of things. And he's in his mid 40s. He would be now in his early 50s. But he said, you know, Jim, I've really, really made a lot of money, and there's almost anything. If I'd lose all my fortune now, I could rebuild it. Because I just have a knack of making money. And he said, I just, but he said, you know what? I'm really beginning to wonder, why am I doing this? Because I'm asking myself now, how much more money do I need to make? And he was just getting introduced. He goes to one of my Bible studies now very regularly. But he was just being introduced to spiritual things. He's put his faith in Christ now, but he, and I've heard other men use this. But he said, "What I've re- the conclusion I've reached is I've been leaning my ladder against the wrong wall." That's the that the, that is the most one of the most powerful statements I've ever heard anybody say. He's exactly right because the wall he was leaning against is starting to collapse. He wants a wall that's solid that gives meaning and purpose to what he's doing and why he does what he does. And when, when really successful people, their focus, their focus and all their energy and all their time and their sleepless nights and anxiety is on that goal and a lot of times it's success and what they've chosen to do in order to make more money. Not always money, but the success. But then they get there. Now what? I'm, I'm exhausted. I've maybe even made myself sick. I've reached my goals. Now what? Well, in my friend's language, you've been leaning your ladder against the wrong wall. Choose another wall, which is not necessarily a great way to talk about Jesus, but that's the point. There's a wall that is immovable and will bring meaning and purpose to everything you do. This is what Solomon's getting at, because Solomon lived much of his adult life as if the theology of his father didn't matter. The theology that you see in the Psalms, the belief in the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, Solomon didn't live that way. And it's not till the end of his life that he's reawakened to what is really, really important. 
That's what this book's about. Joe. So the frustrating thing for me is if I, if I do have my ladder leaning against the right wall, but you know, I still live a lot like this, or a lot like everybody else, um, that seems frustrating. It seems like I should, you know, there should be something different. I mean, maybe I do have Christ as my Savior, and I do involve myself in things that are good and godly and so forth, but so much of my life still looks a lot like the guy next door in terms of work and efforts and, you know, I get to the end of my life and it's still gone. Maybe I've used a little bit more for good things than the guy next door, but you know what I mean? It I do, like, I do, I do. It seems like it's so easy to fall into that pattern that we're all in and just caught up in the, in the, <clears throat> in the way of the culture or our environment or whatever you want to call it. So that's, that's you are it's frustrating for me. Yeah, and and even a, even another word that might fit even into what you're trying to express is just a, is a tension there, the tension of I am living like my next door neighbor in some ways, but yet in another ways I'm not. I would suggest to you two things. One, that is part of what Jesus is talking about in John 17, his high priestly prayer. Joel Jenkins, you're in the world, but Joel, you're not of the world. And secondly, so I mean, there, that, just that statement alone, I, I, in my ethics book, chapter 3, is about that statement. But that is a statement that's filled with tension for you and me as Christians. Because Jesus, in that same part of the prayer, says, Father, do not take them out of the world. Which I wish he would have prayed the moment they put their faith, take them home to glory, Lord. You know? <laughs> But then if that, if that was his prayer, there would be nobody left to be witnesses. There'd be no salt and light. So we know that it wouldn't fit his program. Anyway, I think the other side of that, we, we'll, we live with that tension because that is, that is part of the realities of being saved out of the values and morals and ethical standards of the world, but still to be in it. But I live, but I live in, in my life according to a different drumbeat. But I think one of the things that is so important for us, and I'll use a singular verse for that, is 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Paul says, whatever you eat, drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You're in the banking industry. You've got to be the best banker there possibly is. Why? Did you get a higher salary, higher promotion? Well, that may or may not occur, but I'm doing it to the glory of God. I, I tell my students, the value for you in your life that comes out of a verse like that is excellent. I pursue excellence because that reflects the glory of God. Are my God's a God of excellence? So therefore, that's one of my core values. Is working hard a value? It is. Colossians 3.22, I work hard. Why? Because I'm bringing glory to God through it. Um, and then that affects how you take the... the um, I don't know if I want to say wealth, but I, I'll use that word. But the wealth or the bounty or the abundance of what God gives you, and it matters how you use it. Over time, people will see a difference because your values are reflecting something very, very different from that of the world. But, Joel, that, I'm glad you said it. I really am thankful you said that because you are, you are kind of putting in a couple of sentences the tension we feel as Christians. And the third point is, we will feel that tension and we will be pursuing excellence because 
there is a transitoriness, a transitional nature to life because this is no longer our home. Your home, your wife's home, your children's home is eternity. The new heaven and the new earth. What you and I are living right now is the front door to that. And this front door matters as much as when we go through the door. And so it matters how we live because now, now our task is to represent him and represent him well. They're just three thoughts. Okay. But I, I really appreciate you saying it because that tension is real. I know exactly what you mean. I think everyone around this table knows what you mean by that. I've got to pray because I'm late, but that was a good question, and I'll just be late for my next appointment. Father, we're grateful for um, laying the groundwork for this magnificent book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, thank you for the privilege of studying it together. I pray that it will be a blessing to these men. I pray that it will help them to think perhaps a bit more biblically, uh, a bit more eternally about the significance of everything they do in their life. Uh, Lord, uh, everything about our life is important to you, for you are a 24-7 God. Every aspect, every dimension that is a part of who we are is of value and worth to you. And it's important for us to see it that way. Because, Lord, if, if there is no God and there is no purpose and eternal meaning, then life is utterly and absolutely meaningless. But praise be to you, that is not true. Because of you, there is purpose and meaning. And we should do everything we do to your glory, to pursue excellence, to do the best we can, because we are reflecting you. But at the same time, to remember, in a very real sense, we're just kind of passing through because the new heaven and the new earth is our home. We're citizens of that new kingdom. But until that occurs, we're to represent our king. We're to do what we do to your glory and honor because we reflect you. Help us to be faithful and help us to learn collectively in this study together as we pursue it in Christ's name. Amen. Have a great week. Have a great rest of the week.